You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. So my guest today is Professor of Gynaecology at the University of British Columbia and author of amazing book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, Laurie Brotto. And we are talking all about how mindfulness can help your sex life, change your sex life, um, help you develop your sex life and all the ways in which it can be helpful. So Laurie, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks, Kate. And so really what I wanted to focus on is mindful sex at least for me as a professional, seems to be something that's really being talked about the last couple of years. And although the principles were absolutely kind of ingrained or kind of woven into psychosexual therapy, sexology, understanding sex, and I suppose it's a thing that lots of people kind of naturally do. For me, where I've lent on it in my practice is when people are distracted or having problems with sex or are out of the moment with sex, it's almost bringing them back to that place. But it might have been something that they were already doing automatically with having never thought about it. But these are techniques that we're now understanding can help with pretty much anything to do with our sex lives. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, to be fair, meditation has existed for thousands of years, um, but it's really been in the last probably four decades, that mindfulness, which is the secular um, reinterpretation of, of traditional meditation practices, that it's really made its way into Western healthcare. Um, and so I, be, I, I learned about mindfulness in 2002 when I was a fellow at the University of Washington, um, began to immerse myself in, in my own personal practice of mindfulness and, and meditation, um, and then began to use these skills, which essentially teach the individual present moment, non-judgmental, non-judgmental awareness, um, and began to apply them to uh, primarily women with uh, difficulties noticing their own arousal. And the population of women I originally worked with were cancer survivors. So for them, it was fear of cancer recurrence, it was a true loss of, of arousal um, and worries and also concerns about a, a, how a partner might uh, experience their new sexuality. All of those that got in the way of them really feeling their own sexual response. So mindfulness for that group really made a lot of sense at that time. Mm, because it's not just the, the physical implications of having had cancer and of the treatment. It's the psychological, it's the self-image, it's the body confidence it's I suppose it's so important for both sides of the kind of psychological and physical side of things absolutely and um what what we learned from doing the study um and measuring both their physical response we we brought them into a controlled laboratory setting and measured what does their body do in response to viewing erotica before the mindfulness and after it and then we also of course had interview questions survey questions um and many other ways of measuring their awareness of their body Um, And what was striking to me was uh, that not only uh, did did their did their awareness of their genital sensations and kind of general arousal sensations increase as a result of their mindful practice, 
but their actual physical response increased as well. So we measure this mm. with um, something called a vaginal photoplethysmograph. It, it basically gives us um, an index, an indirect index of genital blood flow. So as their awareness increased, likely what was happening was that brain-body connection, that, that critical communication, which is necessary for sexual arousal, translated into actual increases in their body's ability to produce these arousal sensations. Um, so it was, it was pretty striking um, and certainly enough for me um, and our research team to continue down this line of inquiry in, um, and then sort of expand the science to different populations of women as well. Mm, and for me, I mean, that kind of is almost all the evidence you need for <laughs> the mind-body connect is mm -hmm. the mind is actually changing the way that the body operates. Yes. And, you know, I think I think it's that's still such a, um, a foreign concept for a lot of people mm. to understand. And it probably comes from um, maybe historic beliefs that, you know, once we're born, the brain is incapable of changing um, and then with science, we've learned that actually the brain can, is, is very plastic and can continue mm. to sprout new neurons and grow into damaged areas with practice and with training. And so uh, what we now know today, thanks to a lot of really quite fascinating neuroscience studies, is that mindfulness practice translates into brain changes. So it, it leads to changes in how the brain functions. So when we pay attention um, and we let go of thoughts and we let emotions sort of exist in the background, what you see is different patterns of the brain activation. So the necessary parts are activating the attention centers, but the unnecessary parts, so the emotion center, the thinking center, become more quiet. Um, and then in parallel, we also know that the brain actually can sprout these new uh, neurons and, and generate new, uh, new tissue as a result of mindful practice. So it's very much the case that this, this practice results in structural and functional changes in the brain. Um, and, and those collectively probably contrib contribute to some of the changes that we see in sexuality. Mm. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. You know, I, I love... Um you know, the idea of like the brain that changes itself. Mm -hmm. And I suppose so much of it ties into that. And it's something that I suppose is to do with learning. And I noticed that you use the word practice mm -hmm. a lot when you're saying that. And that is because mindfulness is a practice, isn't it? It's not something we can just pick up one day and kind of develop overnight. It is something that takes repeated practice and trial and um, time and effort. Yeah. And that's such an important point to re-emphasize, Kate, because um, I think we live in a world where we we have, you know, we've we've come to expect the quick fix. And that's why there mm -hmm. has been so much appeal for um, the quote female Viagra, right? This this mm. uh, notion that um, wrapped up in a single pill is the key to improving women's sexual pleasure and their relationships and their orgasms and their desire, etc. Um, and it's completely a myth. So you know, despite the fact that there are a couple of medications that are approved in different parts of the world for improving women's sexual desire, 
when you actually look at the findings, uh, the improvements are really quite minimal. The side effects are significant, um, and they don't improve things like general well-being or feelings for partner or anxiety mm. and stress and depression. Um, and so, but sexuality, of course, is wrapped up in all of those other things. It doesn't exist in isolation. We know that when we're depressed or when we're stressed or when we're fatigued, it can take a toll on our interest in sexuality and our ability to feel pleasure. So it makes a lot of sense that an approach which is really designed to um, address all of those multidimensional parts of sexuality and its larger context, that that would be far more effective and, and the effects would be more lasting. Um, the the downside, if you will, and some people see this as a downside, some just accept this, is that because it's not a quick fix, it does require practice. So in our groups, uh, our, we run groups for eight weeks. And um, during our sessions, we do quite a lot of in-depth face-to-face, although we're now doing it t- totally online, mm. uh, thanks to COVID-19, um, fa- face-to-face pr- um, or online practice of the mindfulness sessions. And then we encourage women to supplement this with daily mindfulness practice. And those daily formal practices might vary in length from 10 minutes all the way through to 30 minutes. So the practice is really at the heart of being able to integrate mindfulness into one's life um, and be able to live mindfully more more generally. Mm. But I suppose like anything in life, we have learning, we have trial and error, and a bit like driving a car for the first time, we get in, we're thinking, oh my God, there's so many things I've got to think about and so many things I've got to do, and I'm kind of more unsure and more uncertain And, you know, a lot of us now having kind of been driving for years, we'll get in the car and won't even think about Mm -hmm. it. We won't even have to kind of consciously consider the order that things go in or what we need to check or how we do it. We just kind of, you know, open, unlock the car and drive off. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's, it becomes like any practice, the more we do it, the, the easier it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we run eight-week groups. And that's certainly modeled after mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression and pain. Um, and so by by having the structure of the group, um, and, and I love doing this in group format because then there's you know, the ability of the different group members to share in their experience, including their struggles, um, including sharing information about how they schedule this into their day. So uh, what, what you observe is that after eight weeks of regular practice and regular checking in by the group leaders and facilitators to the participants is by then they've established such a good habit, if you will, that um, as well as they've benefited personally and, they, and they've experienced and observed those benefits, that there's a lot of motivation to continue. Um, In one of our recently published studies where we followed women for an additional year after they completed our eight-week interventions, and by a year out, the vast majority were continuing to practice all of the same mindfulness exercises that we had run in group together. Um, And when we asked them, wow, this is, you know, pretty remarkable that you're continuing to do this, especially since no one's one's asking you about them. There's Mm, no homework. There's no accountability. But again, because they had derived so much personal benefit there was uh, there was a lot of incentive to continue the practice mm. so the kind of benefits alone almost speak for themselves and I suppose you know as a, a therapist a lot of what I'm seeing is 
the therapy process really turns a corner when we see that the motivation is met by um, progress and more progress is met by more motivation. And I, I suppose you're describing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in our groups, we uh, it's, it's quite interesting because we never actually... Um, tell women that they need to be practicing the mindfulness, nor do we ever directly explain how mindfulness might benefit their sexuality. Rather, what we do is we dive right into the practice. Um, and then we ask the participants themselves, um, what did you observe during this practice? How was observing in this way different from how you normally, say, observe the breath or observe the body? Um, and then finally, how was this, how could this be relevant to your own sexuality? So they come up with the answers. They come up with the connections for how mindfulness might be useful to their own sex lives. And as a result, it becomes much more kind of real and authentic for them rather than us telling them how that might work for them. Mm. And I suppose like so much of sexuality, it's not kind of what we're doing but how we're doing it that becomes the most important factor and that being personalized is is a pretty amazing um motivation or pretty amazing way of fitting it in because people get to do that in the way that is most suitable for them mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and and again my own preference is doing this in the group setting although it works very very well um you know one on with one-on-one -on -one, also, increasingly, we've been doing this with couples. We just finished a study uh, with prostate cancer survivors and their partners um, and delivering the mindfulness exercises uh, in, in couple format. Um, and, you know, I think the findings are pretty consistent across those different modes of, of delivery. Mm. And so we understand those principles can have a big effect. And I guess, is mindful sex... Um, you know, for people listening, is it as simple as kind of have sex and think of nothing else? Or is there a lot more to it? Because <laughs> I think that's what people think it is. It's, it's yeah. you know, I um, often describe it to people or, you know, mindfulness is a concept, but also just I consider a lot of my job to be like helping people to kind of switch off to turn on. And yeah. I suppose a lot of the difficulties that I find people I'm working with are struggling with is it's not necessarily the kind of act of sex itself. It's everything that it means and everything it represents. It's the anxieties that go with it. It's getting in the right headspace. It's their thoughts. It's their thinking, their perspective. So for me, I suppose modeling in some of those exercises to my therapy practice is really important, but it's also about changing the perspective. But I think there are loads of articles about mindful sex and it does seem to be um, simplified to this idea of kind of just think about the sex you're having. Yeah. And, you know, mindfulness is not about emptying the mind. Um, mm. It's not about, you know, take the distractions and file them away in a closet and lock the door and throw away the key. Rather, it was so easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ra rather, it is about bringing awareness to everything that is there, including the distractions, including the benign, mm. uh, meaningless thoughts that are still intrusive, such as, you know, did I turn the stove off? What am I going to make for dinner? What time am I driving the kids to their soccer game? 
And that's the reality of a lot of our, our minds. And increasingly, um, we have become a chronic multitasking society. Um, mm, and, and so it's, it's very, very challenging to turn that off. And in fact, I'm always struck by how often I hear on an almost daily basis, people praising, um, their multitasking ability, right? Um, you know, I can, I can do all these things at the same time that allows me to be so productive. Um, and yet what we know in reality, what the brain science tells us is that we are actually incapable of multitasking so when we think we are attending to different things equally all at the same time, we're actually shifting attention from one task to another mm. thing to another thing. And every time we do that, there's a minor toll that that takes in terms of focus and attention and memory um, and ability to um, do things error-free, etc. So we, it, it's a fallacy. We don't actually multitask even though we think we are multitasking. So mindfulness really teaches us to fully attend to whatever whatever comes up for us in the present moment to fully, fully attend to it without judging different things. So we don't say, mm. oh, I like the feeling of the depth of my breath in, in my belly, and I don't like this pain in my lower back. We're, we're invited to just observe those sensations. We might say, okay, noticing tension, noticing warmth, noticing pulsing. So we're really using the bare sensations uh, to describe those different feelings in, in our body and also in our mind. And so in the same way, as we're observing those different things, we might also observe intrusive thoughts. But rather than mm. getting wrapped up in the content of them, so rather than saying, um, oh, need to drive child to soccer, um, uh, did they eat their dinner? Did I fill up their water bottle? Uh, did I let the team know that they would be five minutes late, right? Sort of getting down that rabbit hole of, yeah. of thoughts. Rather, what we say is, oh, noticing intrusive thought and then come back. So you can almost label the thought as intrusive and keep it at arm's length without getting wrapped mm. up in the content. Um, we all know, right, the analogy of the pink elephant in the room, that as soon as we start telling ourselves, don't think that, don't think that, that yeah. the thought suddenly garners a lot more attention. So mm. mindfulness teaches us just to observe that it's there and by expanding the kind of container of our awareness, we're able to observe everything, all the pleasants, all the unpleasants, all the neutrals and everything in between, um, and then make a choice what we decide to really focus our attention on. So mm. long story, um, but the, the short of it is um, that it's about bringing full awareness to whatever arises, and it's not about turning off certain thoughts. Mm. So it's not trying to filter or just hold on to the good or get rid of the bad, and I think quite often um, mindfulness exercises describe kind of noticing your thoughts like clouds, kind of mm -hmm. allowing them to to be there and to float and recognizing that they're there. Because I think when it comes to sex, particularly, or people struggling with sexual performance anxiety and things, as soon as they notice a or feel that there's a negative thought coming, they kind of go like, no, 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 no. And actually what it gives that is more attention, more right. space, right. more distraction. And so what we're trying to encourage with this approach is to not 
overemphasize those thoughts. Yeah, and there's there's a term um, borrowed from from Buddhist meditation called equanimity, um, and I, I use that phrase a lot in my work with clients. And equanimity basically means bringing equal awareness, equal attention, equal affinity, if you will, to everything that arises, the, all the pleasant thoughts and feelings, all the unpleasant ones and all of the neutral ones. And um, it's a challenging practice because I think we um, have evolved to judge and sort things into good and bad. Um, Mm. And we don't want to keep, you know, negativity in our life. Um, But but often, as you pointed out, Kate, when we struggle to try and let go of those things, they their grip on us suddenly becomes uh, so much more sticky. So through equanimity um, and through our practice of observing everything that comes up, then we start to um, be able to have a bit more arm's length from all of the different feelings that come up. And our distress around the negative ones starts to go down with time. So that's really what we're aiming for in mindfulness practice is can we fully be aware of everything, all the positive, all the negative, all the neutral, but let go of the distress and the suffering that might be associated with some of the more negative things like chronic pain. And I think that it's really interesting you were saying that kind of idea of like sorting. We do really like to sort, but I think kind of sort things into the boxes. We like to kind of know where we are. But I think particularly when it comes to sex and sexuality and sex lives, we are almost hypersensitive to the negative or feeling vulnerable or feeling exposed or feeling embarrassed or guilty or ashamed. And I think that it feels like the kind of worlds collide mm-hmm. in that sexual space because we're almost on kind of high alert for getting it right or pleasing our partners Mm -hmm. or it going perfectly you know performance anxiety being one of the most common things at least I work with Mm -hmm. because we don't also have the kind of commonplace conversations about sex or anything to a reference point to check against or an idea of norms Mm -hmm. or what is more common and I think that that kind of culture that we have around sex, you know, that kind of more negative sexual culture exacerbates everything that we might already be thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've got so much uh, scientific data that that tells us that people experience very high rates of shame and embarrassment and stigma around their sexuality. Um, and a lot of people don't uh, seek care uh, to, you know, either improve their sexuality or seek accurate corrective information around their sexuality. And so they remain locked with these inaccurate beliefs um, and unhealthy ways of, uh, you know, probably that have evolved over time, but certainly reinforced from early messages from a child, etc. Um, and so mindfulness is a very forgiving practice because it is based on a platform of compassion, right? So compassion is half the definition of mindfulness, the other half being paying attention moment by moment. So in that way, it is it is so universally applicable across the spectrum of different kinds of sexual concerns that people might experience. Um, and I, I use it um, a lot for people with 
very, very strong negative um, upbringings around sexuality with, you know, very negative views around sexual practices, or maybe this is a person who was quote unquote caught masturbating at a young age and mm. um, given very uh, harmful and, and lasting messages around the dangers of masturbation, et cetera. So mindfulness, which again is 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 based upon a foundation of compassion, teaches the person to be kind to themselves, to be forgiving to themselves while they're paying attention moment by moment. Um, and that that part of it can be really transformative for a lot of people who struggle with their mm. sexuality, either alone or, or within their relationships. Well, it's so accepting, isn't it? And I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest kind of steps forward we can take in terms of kind of our sexual wellness is first awareness mm -hmm. and secondly, kind of acceptance and acceptance of what works for us and what works for other people so mm -hmm. not understanding that the same thing has to apply to everyone right but i suppose distraction is one of the kind of killers of sex mm -hmm. and desire and libido and um kind of is one of the biggest problems i think that people have and i know as you were saying earlier our lives are so distracted and so busy mm -hmm. now but i suppose distraction and sex kind of clash mm -hmm. and we understand that we only have a certain amount of attention available at any one time and so if our thoughts are very negative and we are responding to that as if they are threatening mm -hmm. so the kind of area of our brain that is responding to that is like okay well this doesn't feel good or I feel like something is going to go wrong or I'm feeling anxious and I'm getting stressed mm -hmm. then what we are then struggling with is how to step away from that or how do we tune back in mm -hmm. because our body is telling us that these thoughts are not good mm -hmm. and that this isn't something good and this isn't something that we should go towards mm -hmm. and isn't something that we should be relaxed about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, all, all of that is so true. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what we've observed now since we've been running these mindfulness groups for um, well, I started in 2002 and we started evaluating them in 2003 and, and, and beyond. So close to 18 years we've been evaluating um, is that they're, they're consistently uh, effective for improving different facets of, of sexuality in the different populations. But what's really, really interesting is the underlying mechanisms of why is mindfulness working for this person and, and why might it be working for this other person? And what's mm. been so interesting is that there might be different mechanisms of action um, that are allowing mindfulness to be beneficial to a particular individual. So certainly for a lot of the women with low desire that we've evaluated over the years, for them, the critical ingredient was teaching them um, to become aware of their body's sensations you know, they'll often say that they just feel disconnected from their body. They don't know, they can't sense what's happening in different parts of their mm -hmm. body. And hence, when they're become a, becoming aroused, they, they're they not aware of it. So They're not noticing. Ex yeah, exactly. And that's sometimes described as um, non-concordance. That's exactly right. So the process of becoming aware is called interoception. Um, and mm. so we you know, listeners might know of people who can actually feel when they're ovulating or can sense changes in their blood pressure or in their heart rate. So those are people who are very 
um, interoceptively aware. But for the most part, when it comes to sexuality, um, and this is particularly a feature of, of women, is that there's this um, non-concordance. In other words, their, their body might be, be becoming sexually aroused, but their mind is not tuning into it and thus not aware that they're becoming aroused. Um, so you have this kind of disconnect between these two different facets of sexual arousal. Um, and so mindfulness, uh, which again, teaches us to become aware of body sensations, we've found now in a number of studies, actually increases concordance between the body's arousal and, and the mind's arousal. So that's a really mm. important mechanism for a lot of people. Um, for other people, though, it might be uh, the impact of mindfulness on mood. So the studies in depression find that mindfulness can improve mood and decrease uh, uh, symptoms of depression, but also decrease depression recurrence in people who have a history of depression. And because depression and low desire are so highly linked to one another, it may be the case that for some people, it's mindfulness's effects on mood and anxiety and, and self-reports of stress that contribute to its benefits in, in sexuality. So this is where our, our science, um, at least in my lab, is now focusing. We already can almost conclude uh, nearly universally that mindfulness benefits people when it comes to their sexuality, mm. but the underlying how and for whom is what I'm really fascinated with. Mm. And I suppose, you know, our understanding of desire now is that for lots of people, it is largely responsive, but mm -hmm. it's also context dependent. Yeah. So if a mindfulness in itself as a practice can change our context and how we're experiencing our contexts, then the knock-on effect of that could be a change in desire, but it could also be the specific techniques are helping people to recognize what's going on in their body. And I suppose, you know, those are some of the questions that we as clinicians ask clients about noticing arousal mm -hmm. or noticing desire and how they, they recognize the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And I know I've been focusing on women a lot in this conversation and the cover of my book mentions women, uh, but it's worth mentioning that we've applied all of these same strategies to men. Um, so men with um, difficulty with erections in, in a partnered context, uh, but no difficulties with erection on their own. So something that we called situational erectile yeah. dysfunction. And we've published on the benefits of group mindfulness for those men. Essentially, it's about how do we decrease their anxiety about not getting an erection and just keep them mm. firmly rooted in the here and now. And it turns out that can be really effective for these men with situational erectile dysfunction. Absolutely. And I think it goes, it goes against that goal-orientated model of sex, which I find very problematic. And I think you know, a lot of the people that I'm working with are struggling with because if all of the emphasis is around penetrative sex and intercourse and that's the thing you're struggling with, it can completely turn your sex life and your perception of your sexual ability or performance completely on its head. And that can be absolutely terrifying for people. But if we're able to move away from this kind of linear model of sex, which is kind of A leads to B leads to C mm -hmm. leads to penetrative sex and that's where it all ends. leads to orgasm the only bit that counts <laughs> yeah <Right>? exactly <laughs> but you know that's it it's the the focus is so much on that you know linear which mm -hmm. is also problematic because it's very heteronormative right. model right. 
And what we're also saying is that kind of mindfulness techniques being more aware, being more present, more in the moment, experiencing the sensations mm -hmm. can, I think, also tie in with validating a rethinking someone's model, of yeah. self, which is moving away from this linear kind of more fixed model, which might not suit everyone. And also some people might not be able to do. Yeah. And so it can help to reposition someone's sexual mindset, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think uh, what you're talking about, Kate, is so important for listeners to um, know and understand. And it is uh, the fact that we're not born with a set level of sexual desire um, and often mm. that's what people believe. And thus, when they experience a decrease in their desire, they think that, you know, that that's it, they're doomed. There's nothing they can do to get their desire back. Um, mm. And yet what the research really tells us is that that's a really um, artificial and, and ineffective way of understanding sexual desire. And it leads people to feel really broken. So rather thinking about desire as something that is very context dependent, something that is very sensitive to um, uh, the things that trigger it, the things that elicit it. Um, and in that way, desire is something that can be cultivated. Um, and so that's mm. this kind of notion of responsive desire, desire that emerges in response to a particular context, in response to a particular set of effective triggers. So mindfulness is absolutely critical to that because it allows a person to become aware of, well, what are those triggers for me that mm. elicit my desire? And maybe they're different now than they were at an earlier stage in my relationship or 30 years ago or, you know, before I went through menopause or before I had that surgery. Yeah. So mindfulness is um, very, very useful for, for allowing us to appreciate what are the things that elicit interest and motivation for us. Um, and mm -hmm. so this kind of reframe of desire as something that emerges, something that can be cultivated and something that with mindfulness allows us to tune in and amplify it even more um, is, is so normalizing for people who think mm -hmm. that they're otherwise broken when it comes to their, yeah. their desire. And I very much kind of approach sexuality in my kind of work and working with people about sexuality is this flexible approach, which is that might have been something that used to work with you or you liked that with a previous partner, but now you might not. Or for example, you know, the idea of focusing on the sensations that comes with mindfulness is this is what I'm enjoying now. Mm -hmm. And I think I really focus on the now and for the time being not fixed mm -hmm. understanding and approach to, for example, desire. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I work with lots of people who, for example, are trying to conceive or have, um, had, just had babies or are trying to kind of rebuild intimacy and sexuality after children. And people's relationships with their bodies do change. Yeah. And parts they might have previously liked touch, they might not anymore, or they might have had kind of birth trauma, or they might have had difficulty with, pain in yeah. certain parts of their bodies and I think that we seem to be more accepting of it when there is a different when there's been an event let's use childbirth as an example but we can also open the door to understanding that actually we change our taste in everything we yeah. change our taste in fashion and yeah. food we 
move house, we move careers, we move jobs, but we don't seem to be as accepting of that when it comes to sex. And I think that it's something that I think is at least really important to highlight, that there is this flexibility in our sex lives, but we have to be able to accept and normalize that in ourselves first yeah. and I suppose that that's where it all begins yeah oh and that's why you know I love doing um conversations and podcasts like this because um it, it's a way for people to really uh, get this information firsthand and challenge their pre-existing beliefs and stereotypes um, about sexuality, it can be really challenging for people to get accurate information. You know, if you hop onto Google mm-hmm. and you um, were to type in um, assistance for improving sexual desire, um, you'd have to wade through literally thousands and thousands of different sites um, in order to find good, accurate information. And, and it can be hard to really evaluate, well, what's accurate and what's not. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, my hope is is that through this conversation that um, that listeners will learn something new about their sexual health, they'll feel normalized and validated, and they'll ask questions that will lead them to getting um, the accurate information and, and ideally the support that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's why I started this podcast and host these conversations with different experts. And because for me, it is really... I believe very much in kind of taking the learning from like outside, inside the therapy room mm-hmm. to outside. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a part of my job that I absolutely love. Um, but Laurie, I would love to ask kind of before we wrap up the conversation, if there are any particular pointers or starting points or any advice you can give to people who might be interested in looking into mindful sex or mindfulness for sex for their sex lives. Where would you recommend that people get get started with that? Yeah, um, so you know there there are absolutely um, many different ways of of learning mindful practice. So first of all, there's lots of commercially available apps on your phone um, uh, that one can start to adopt a regular practice. You know, I think making the commitment to start to do this in your life and thinking about, all right, what time of the day am I going to do this? How many days a week am I going to do this? So that commitment and making the time um, is is first and foremost. Um, and then there's definitely more formal ways of learning mindful practice. So there's lots of Dharma centers or meditation centers that exist in the community Certainly where I live at our local community center, they run mindfulness groups even for free. Um, There are uh, professionals that have been trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So perhaps contacting your local college of counselors or or therapists or psychologists and getting a list of people who who, uh, are are trained in being able to teach mindfulness practices. Um, My book also offers a nice introduction. So although it doesn't have all the exercises in there, it does have quite a few of them and they're all pretty thoroughly described. So the hope is that people would be able to pick up my book and uh, be able to uh, to start practicing these um, in their own life, starting on their own, and then gradually tailoring these to uh, being able to practice with a partner. Um, and then, of course, during one's actual sexual encounters as well. Amazing. But your advice would be to kind of start 
outside sexual encounters first yeah. and get established and comfortable with things and then think about incorporating it into your sex life rather than just jumping into putting it into your sex life. Completely. Uh, yeah, I completely think that because, of course, in the sexual context, it's a lot more emotional. Um, there's mm. another person involved usually. And so it, it, it can definitely be a bit more challenging to do that. So in our groups, what we do is we do at least four weeks of mindful practice on one zone before we start to then move that into the partnered context. Amazing. Um, and Laurie, I would love to ask you just before we finish... If you had a tip or a piece of advice for people to do with sexual well-being or to help them improve or boost their sexual well-being, what that would be? Oh, I know goodness. it's so hard to have one. Yeah, there's so <laughs> Every many. Every expert I ask this to says, oh, I've got 100. Yeah. You know, I, I am a firm believer in getting good information um, and asking the right questions. And so maybe that is asking a trusted healthcare provider uh, for accurate information or finding out what are the reputable websites, what are the good evidence-based books that I should be reading and sharing with a partner. Um, we do have a social media campaign in this effort. It's called hashtag debunking desire. Um, we're just uh, wrapping up our campaign by the end of August 2020. And the reason we started the social media campaign is because we realized that there were so many myths about sexual desire that really permeate our culture. Um, so so we use the campaign as a way to share scientific information about sexual desire, but in a very accessible way. So we've got uh, infographic videos and um, brief uh, uh, blurbs that we put on Twitter and Instagram, and we do Facebook Live and Twitter parties and things like that. So I, I really believe that information is key, um, having accurate information and then dismantling inaccurate information is really at the heart of, uh, of of sexual wellness. Amazing. Um, and please tell everyone where they can find out a bit more about you. So your book is Better Sex Through Mindfulness, but is there anything else that you wanted to share with <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter at Dr. Lori Brado. Um, our, and I mentioned our social media campaign is hashtag debunking desire. We have a uh, website with the same name, debunkingdesire.com. And any listeners who might be interested in reading any of the scientific studies, the publications, sometimes folks want to kind of get into the weeds of the science. Um, you can contact me directly and happy to share any of our publications with you as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Laurie. I've found that a hugely helpful conversation and just, you know, I'm already noticing that I'm not being very mindful because I'm just <laughs> thinking in a million directions. But I think that it is so helpful for people to know that there is advice which can be, you know, easily applied to their sex lives for them to make changes. Yeah. Thank you again so much, Kate, for this opportunity to have this great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.